Amina is an activist during the Arab Spring. Her blog, Gay Girl in Damascus, attracts readers from around the world. When she's mysteriously abducted, her followers mobilize, desperate to save her. What they find shocks them. I'm Samira Moyedin, the host of Gay Girl Gone, a new six-part series from CBC. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. What can I use? What can I use? What can I use? What can I use? So you found blankets <laughs> and pillows and pillowcases. Blankets and pillows. I Good mean, job. Oh, my God. It was that's just like, holy crap, this works. <laughs> of course it does. Actually, you know what? That's all. Uh, and you know what? And you've made me feel a lot better about using a T-shirt or a pillowcase. Oh, yeah. I, and, and I mean, for me, I always use my uh, my neck tube uh, or... or um, like a like those really good Scottish woolen scarves. <laughs> yep. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. In this bonus episode, we're back at it, separating fact from fiction and taking on your questions about the coronavirus. Today from my home studio, I'm joined by Jason Tetro, who, as you just heard, is also figuring out new ways of broadcasting from his home in Edmonton. You may know Jason as the germ guy and author of The Germ Code and the bestseller The Germ Files. He's also the host of the Super Awesome Science Show podcast, which we encourage you to check out. Jason is on a mission to increase public awareness of microbes and health, so he's the perfect guy to tackle our subjects today. We're looking at questions around masks, food handling, and cleaning. Welcome to The Dose, Jason. Oh, it's great to be joining you. Yeah, it's great. I wish we uh, didn't have such a crisis, but... Let's get right into this. We have quite a few questions specifically about masks. Mm -hmm. And here's your first one. Masks are getting a lot of attention right now because of reports based on a study that says that the virus may be transmitted through breath. Mm -hmm. What do we know about that? Essentially, whenever you're talking or breathing hard uh, and you happen to have a virus in you, especially if you have a high viral load, yes, indeed, you are going to be sharing that. Uh, just remember that when we're just talking about people who are you know, not coughing or sneezing, we're talking 0.6 meters at the most. And this is studies that were done with all sorts of respiratory viruses. And so if you are going to be within that range of an individual, then you want to have some kind of respiratory protection, whether it be for you so that you don't come into contact or preferably for that person so that what they're saying, what they're pushing out doesn't come towards you. So knowing that it's possible that somebody who has minimal symptoms or almost no symptoms can transmit the virus by talking on you if, if they get close enough to mm -hmm. you, you know, some have suggested that this is the argument for everybody wearing a mask. What do you think? Everyone seems to think that masks are the perfect protection. Well, they're great protection if you already happen to be infected so that nobody else comes around you. And this is something that we see in uh, emergency rooms all across the country. In that context, I agree. However, should you be wearing a mask to protect yourself at all times? The answer is probably not, because if you can maintain that social distance, then you don't need to worry about a mask. And the other thing is that there are other possible ways that you can become infected from other viruses and other potential pathogens that may end up actually getting inside of you simply as a result of poor performance on your part from what we call donning and doffing the mask. Can you say more about that? 
Sure. So when you're actually putting on a mask, what you have to do is you have to do it in such a way that you're protecting your respiratory tract first. So it's going to go over your mouth and over your nose and you're going to hand is going to be there. And that's when you put the straps around you. It's when you're wearing it, you have to maintain that constant pressure and, and constant coverage. If your face starts to itch, you can't scratch it. If you suddenly have to sort of, uh, you know, say something or, or something feels muffled, you can't take the mask off. You can't touch that front part of the mask because that risks any kind of contamination onto your fingertips. And then finally, when it gets to the point that you're going to take that mask off, and remember, masks are one-time use only, you have to essentially take it off from the back. So the straps come first and then it comes down and the part that has been con uh, potentially contaminated stays away from you until it goes either into the receptacle or into whatever package it's going to be if it's going to be uh, reused, recycled through uh, you know processing, sterilization, that type of thing. There are different kinds of masks. Um, mm -hmm. There are the types of masks that, that healthcare workers use. There's N95 masks. There's others that meet certain transmission standards. And there are homemade masks constructed from fabrics like polyester and cotton. So what are the difference in how these different kinds of masks uh, work and how they're effective at protecting someone? Yeah, I, I like to idealize um, uh, your bed when it comes to masks. So when you're really? talking about, yeah, because cloth masks, the homemade stuff that we have at home, it's kind of like sheets. You kind of take, you know, two sheets and you put them one over the other. And that's sort of what you're getting. It's a nice cloth filtration. It's not going to do all that much, but it may actually, well, actually it will protect about 60% of the droplets that may be coming at you. When you start going to surgical masks, first off, you're changing the fabric altogether. So now it's called non-woven. And I'm sure you've heard of microfiber, right? Yep. Um, well, it's the same kind of concept of as microfiber. It's a plastic that has been essentially uh, brought to such a thinness that you can literally create uh, layers with it. And with a surgical mask, you've got a couple of layers that are uh, essentially there to protect you. So imagine your duvet uh, or a quilt and then putting that over your face. That's basically what it's like with a surgical mask. And then we have those N95 respirators. Ah, those are the best, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Well, that's basic. That's basically your pillow. <laughs> really? And we all, yeah. And the fact is, is that as we know, if you put a pillow over someone's face and you start applying pressure, they can't breathe. Why? Because it's so thick. Well, it's the same thing with droplets and aerosols and stuff. When you put that N95 over your face, you basically are preventing any kind of uh, aerosols or droplets from getting in and into your respiratory tract. Now, if we're going out into the regular world and we know that there might be some people around, but we're social or physical distancing, do we really need a pillow? No. I think a pillow is really only necessary for those who are coming in close contact of someone who actively is coughing or sneezing. What does that happen to be? Healthcare workers. As for us out there, if we're interested, surgical masks, might be a good idea, but I would definitely say that you could use those scarves, those neck tubes, those double layers. After all, they were used to help prevent the uh, Spanish flu back in 1918. Why should we be different? So for homemade masks, what are the most important things people need to know if they're attempting to fashion one by themselves or get someone to do it for them? 
Layers, layers and layers and layers, because at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what kind of mask you have. It's the thickness of the layers and how they essentially are uh, absorbing, trapping, filtering out what might be coming at you. And remember, when we're talking about droplets, yes, indeed, they're going to be small enough to get probably through that first layer. But if you got the second or the third or the fourth, you're reducing the probability of it getting through. And as a result of that, you're improving the chances that you're going to be safe. Does the mask need to cover your nose? Oh, yeah. I mean, think about it. The majority of cases that we're seeing right now are essentially in the sinuses, the nasopharyngeal region. Heck, when they do testing on you, they're swabbing your nose. <laughs> so please, please, please protect your nose. And, uh, you know, you've already alluded to this, but I, but, I, but I think it's worth emphasizing. What are the most effective fabrics for homemade masks? It's essentially a woolen type of mask that has a really good ability to um, a density, essentially. Uh, but the fact is that uh, we can use almost anything. So if you look at some of the studies that have been done, uh, you'll actually notice that uh, pillowcases can be used, T-shirts can be used, dish towels can be used. And believe it or not, they've actually shown that a vacuum cleaner bag is almost as effective as a surgical mask. Can masks used in hospitals be reused or cleaned? We're hearing a lot about that because we know that the supplies are running down in, in many hospitals and, and there are concerns that before uh, some emergency shipments come in that, that they might run out. Yeah, and when you think of it from that perspective, you have to realize something. Um, if you're only concerned about the coronavirus, we already know that the risk is there for approximately two to three days. So if you were to develop even just a reusing where you're putting it into a dark closet and not touching it for five days, from a coronavirus perspective, that might be okay. But remember, there's other microbes out there. There are other potential pathogens out there. So what you want to do is if you are going to reuse, you want to come up with some way to not just disinfect, but sterilize them. And thankfully, over the last number of years, we've had several different methods that have shown to be effective, not only in sterilizing so that you can reuse it, but also in maintaining the uh, efficiency of filtration. And what are those? So one of the best ways that I really enjoy is called um, vaporized hydrogen peroxide. What this does is it essentially takes good old fashioned hydrogen peroxide that we all know so well, and it makes a vapor out of it so that it essentially gets into absolutely everything. So if you've got masks that are in a container and the vaporized peroxide gets in there, if there's anything organic, then it's going to react with this particular peroxide. And if it happens to be a virus, a bacteria, whatever, it's going to be killed. There are other options. You can use uh, gamma irradiation, like gamma rays. You can only do that so many times, though. Uh, you could even use ultraviolet light. That seems to be incredibly effective. How can somebody do that safely in their own home? That's really tough. You see, the thing about vaporized hydrogen peroxide is that one of the issues you need to be re, uh, concerned about is the concentration of the vapor itself, because we as humans can also end up getting essentially attacked by hydrogen peroxide. Anyone who's had a, anyone who's had a cut and then put it onto their wound knows. Now, if you start putting that into your respiratory tract, it becomes an irritant. The reason I know this, I've done it. 
It's not fun. Don't do it. So <laughs> while vaporized hydrogen peroxide might be a great way to approach this, I would suggest that you probably don't do it from that perspective. Now, there are people that are using what are known as ultra low volume ULV sort of fogger sprayers or electrostatic sprayers. Now, if you wish to do that, it's only a small amount that is coming out and you're, you're able to control the direction. And in that context, it may be something you might be interested in trying. But again, you know, without the proper training, you may not be doing as an efficient job or as an effective job, I should say, as what is necessary to be sure that everything is safe. Queer life in Montreal was wild. Montreal in the 90s was a great time, but it had a dark side. It was not a safe city for gay people back then. But what else was behind a series of deaths in the city? Somebody's killing gay men. We want to know why. I'm Francis Plourde, and this is The Village, The Montreal Murders. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. Uh, now let's have some questions about food. We had a lot of questions about handling food this week and shopping, and one of them was about takeout. Uh, what precautions are necessary if you miss eating at local restaurants and want to support them by picking up dinner? <laughs> So this is something that I've been thinking about and also sort of going through the motions about. And there's not really much that you need to do. And this is why. At the preparation stage, the risk really comes from, say, salads. Because if you're cooking, you're killing the virus. Then you have the containers, like a cardboard container. Well, the cardboard is porous. It's actually going to absorb the virus. So you don't really have much of a problem. And most people don't lick the cardboard. And there was that New England Journal of Medicine study, the one that got everybody all excited about how long the virus can live. Well, what they didn't hear in the supplemental material was that they had to scrub really hard to get any virus out of the cardboard because it all soaked into the cardboard itself. Now, you're talking, you've talked about takeout foods in the same vein. Should friends and neighbors be sharing home-baked items, soups, prepared foods? You know, this is one is a tough because when we talk about physical distancing, we're talking about those two meters. When we talk about social distancing, it really comes down to the items that we have that we're sharing with others. I would say, you know, if it's a basketball, don't share it. But when we're talking about a homemade pie, we're starting to get a little bit into that sort of iffy zone because the pie has been cooked. So the thing is, is that I personally would still say that it's best for you not to do this, but if you're able to cook it and then put it into a container so that the container itself can be wiped down with some soapy water or something like that, then it might be a good idea. Just be sure that you're dropping it off and you're not actually spending some time in that six foot distance of, your, uh, of the neighbor or whoever it is that you're sharing with. A lot of people wear gloves uh, as if that absolves them of the responsibility for washing their hands. Uh, no. In actual fact, gloves make everything worse. And this is a study I did back in 2007 where we wanted to find out if gloves actually prevent pickup of uh, you know, different types of organisms. And we use norovirus. Uh, everybody knows norovirus. And what we found... Cruise ship, the cruise ship uh, virus. Uh, I've well, had no, it about four or five times. Oh, I've had it too. And, and you know what? It used to be the cruise ship virus, but coronavirus came in and took that name away, which is really frustrating. <sighs> but anyways, what we found were gloves not only picked up more, especially when uh, the surface was wet, 
But even when it dried out, and this is the thing that got us so freaked out, was that when it's dried out, you touch it with your own hands, um, you're not really going to pick up a lot. But if you have a glove on, oh my goodness, you pick up more than enough to be able to infect you. So the fact is, is that gloves themselves are a false sense of security when it comes to protecting yourself against surfaces. Protecting yourself against other people and protecting people against you, great. But when it comes to, you know, handling and surfaces and stuff like that, it doesn't necessarily give you what you need. And more importantly, people actually end up still touching their face when they got gloves on. And that's, that's normal. How much heat kills the virus on cooked foods? When we talk about viruses, especially envelope viruses, uh, the heat isn't all that important. Uh, it's really, you know, 45 to 50 degrees, you start to see some kind of breakdown that's happening. But what I like to say is that 65 degrees Celsius and above is really all that you need in this particular case. So any kind of cooking that you're doing, and heck, even reheating in a microwave, if it's hot to taste, if it's hot to touch, then you've probably done an effective job of getting rid of this virus. Um, and when you pay, when you're in a grocery store, how infectious is cash like bills or change? So cash is going to have some infectability. Uh, we've seen this before, uh, especially, you know, if it's coming from someone who's actively shedding, whether it be through coughing, sneezing, that type of thing. The one thing I want people to realize is that um, remember there was this uh, study about airports and they were looking at the um, uh, the containers that you put all of your you know uh, keys and, and laptops into. And they found that they were like totally coated with influenza and other viruses. Well, there was another part of that study that nobody heard about. And that was the payment terminals had coronavirus on them. Oh, dear. Yeah. So if you can tap, tap away. But if you have to, for some reason, use the payment terminals, you're going to use hand hygiene afterwards with a hand sanitizer, 62 to 70 percent alcohol, 15 seconds, keep it wet. Um, wanted to end on 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 another question about the grocery store. Uh, there have been videos posted of people disinfecting each item that they get from the store, and some experts say that's not required. So there's some confusion. What do you think? No, you don't need to do that at all. Um, the only things that you really need to be thinking about are produce, because most of the time you're having that within that 48 to 72 hour period where the virus may still be alive. You're going to put that under running water. You're going to give it a little bit of um, friction, nothing huge. As for your cans, don't worry about those because you're probably not going to be using them. So just keep them in the dark for those 48 to 72 hours or longer. The virus is going to die. And if you're worried about cardboard or anything, again, remember, it's it's basically going to be inside the matrix. It's going to die in a few days. And if it's plastic, well, you can wipe down plastic with soap and water if you really want to. But again, unless you're going to be using it within that two to three day period, why would you even bother? Just make sure that after you've handled your groceries, you're washing your hands, just, just to be sure. Jason Tetro, thank you so much for this. Not a problem. It was such a pleasure. Jason Tetro, the germ guy, is an author and host of the Super Awesome Science Show. Like The Dose, you can find that wherever you get your podcasts. He spoke to me from Edmonton. And just a note on our conversation about masks and whether or not they're recommended for the general population. Since Jason and I spoke, Dr. Teresa Tam, the head of the Public Health Agency of Canada, also spoke about masks. Dr. Tam advised that Canadians can use non-medical masks, along with social distancing measures, to limit the transmission of COVID-19. But she warned that a non-medical mask doesn't necessarily protect the person wearing it, although it could help stop transmission of the virus. 
We're going to continue to do what we can to help you separate fact from fiction here on The Dose. So send us your questions. Email the dose at cbc.ca or tweet us at CBC White Coat or me at NightShiftMD with the hashtag TheDoseCBC. From here on in, we'll be answering those questions every other Thursday on our regular episode of The Dose. So look for that in your feed. This Thursday on The Dose, we'll be giving you guidance on everything you need to know about testing for COVID-19, from how accurate the test is to when you're likely to get the most accurate result. This episode of The Dose was produced by Ariane Robinson, Donna Dingwall, and me, with digital support from Fabiola Carletti and technical support from Austin Pomeroy. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But as usual, if you're looking for medical advice, see your healthcare provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.